once again. Welcome to the Up Your Dialogue podcast. I am your co-host, Ellie Londi, along with my co-host, J. Scott Harden. And we are on episode five, season two. And um, our podcast today is once again going to be focused on the coronavirus um, with a specific focus on data points and the opening up of America. Given the fact that President Trump yesterday, uh, April 16th, uh, exactly two weeks before the declared day of opening up, or actually I should say the day that President Trump had originally extended the lockdown until it was April 30th. So two weeks prior to that, uh, the president released his um, guidelines for opening up America, and he has distributed those guidelines to the governors. So it's a good time, we thought, to discuss a couple good months of coronavirus data, talk about where the data points to. Uh, Those of you who have listened to the Up Your Dialogue podcast know that Jay Scott and myself are professionally speaking data people. Uh, We've spent a lot of our careers focusing on data in not only corporate life, but in the world of entrepreneurship um, as well as other areas. So we're always very concerned about data. We think that... um, Data points to truth, points to facts, and that most decisions um, should be made on data, truth, facts, what have you. So uh, in this podcast, we we do provide two different lenses of uh, seeing the world. However, we're able to come together on a lot of ideas uh, that most people with these different lenses can't come to because they're shouting at each other, they're involved in character assassination, they're... um, not looking at truth or not looking at facts or just looking at either anecdotal data or judging by feeling or what have you. And so um, a lot of a lot of people can't talk to each other in today's environment. Uh, but over the years, what we've noticed is that even though we do have different worldviews, we do look through different lenses, um, at least from a worldview standpoint of agnostic versus Christian, um, because we are also data people, we're able to see through some of the... Um, bias in the lens and are often able to come to agreements or uh, at a minimum uh, at least have good conversation about disagreements if there are some. And so I think uh, we're going to see the same thing as this regard to coronavirus when the topic is really how do we push America forward? Well, in order to know how to push America forward, it's necessary to have data to um, look at. And, And I think that um, that's what they're trying to do in in the not only the Trump administration, but in the coronavirus task force, um, and uh, and rightly so. Um, now, the the lack of some data is causing us some problems in making good decisions, but we're going to have to make decisions even in, with a lack of data uh, because we can't just keep the country shut down in perpetuity. And I think everybody left, right, and center agrees on that. So we have to act on the data that we do have, and there is plenty of data to look at. So we're going to focus on that and see what kind of conclusions we can draw about how coronavirus has affected the country, has affected the economy, uh, has affected the, the decisions regarding lockdown and social distancing. And then we're going to, we're going to um, try and look into the future a bit and say, um, how should America go forward based on the data and everything that we've seen so far uh, in regards to coronavirus. So we're also going to look a little bit at timelines um, uh, because timelines are part of the data, part part of the data set and how that data has been formatted over time. So um, that's the focus. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the podcast and now we'll kick it over to Jay Scott for some opening comments. Yeah, that's great. Uh, This is April 17th. Welcome everybody to Up Your Dialogue. 
Season 2, Episode 5, we are making progress because of our various lockdowns and quarantines. So uh, some clouds, if you look hard enough, have little silver linings, they say. And we have had a chance to um, engage and, and produce more of the podcast. So I'll take that as a plus. As an aside, we're talking about data today. Um, and we have a Twitter account, at Up Your Dialogue. And we did a we did a poll just revisiting last episode of... Uh, of watchers of the Twitter account, what is the best uh, Joaquin Phoenix movie ever made? And I just, you know, part of it is, and this is a good enough lesson in, in how to construct, how data is used to construct narratives, but uh, but there were four possibilities in the poll created by me. Um, and so already that limits the number of Joaquin Phoenix films, but I picked some of his more popular ones, such as The Joker, uh, Gladiator, and Walk the Line. And then the fourth category was Other. And I had a little chat about uh, the films that we reviewed, The Village and Her. Uh, and some people picked other and, you know, picked uh, Signs and other other Joaquin Phoenix uh, films. But so far, I think there's one day remaining in the poll, a week-long poll. And it kind of goes back and forth. But as of right now, uh, the Joker is in the lead, uh, narrowly, over Walk the Line. So this may go down as Joaquin Phoenix's best film, according to the At Up Your Dialogue poll. And uh, I uh, placed a vote under my private account for Walk the Line because that was my wife's favorite uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix movie. So one one vote I know was cast for Walk the Line, but uh, right now the Joker has it. Um, so just uh, we'll talk about uh, COVID and data and timelines, but uh, just as an aside, LA, what do you what what do you think? We have a day left. Is the Joker going to win? I think it's ahead by maybe oh three votes or so right now. Yeah, it may win. Um... But data can be skewed for different reasons. You know, the Joker's this most recent movie, probably the movie that's front and center in, in everybody's mind. Um, I did like the his acting in the Joker, although I didn't care for the movie as much. So I guess that would probably have an impact on my vote just because the movie, the Joker, wasn't my favorite, even though I thought his performance was well. And The Village is one of my favorite movies, Joaquin Phoenix in it. However, he didn't have a prominent role in that movie. So um, I don't think that... Um, that would probably count as far as just going from his best acted. I think probably Walk the Line was his best acted movie where he was a prominent feature. Um, and I also enjoyed the movie at the same time. In the case of studying data, um, this is a good example of how the questions and how the set is framed by the person constructing the poll or the data set or gathering or di- or presenting the statistics. So what I mean by that is just in this little uh add up your dialogue poll of twi- on Twitter, what would have happened uh, if I would have written the poll such that it would have said, what is your favorite Joaquin Phoenix movie? Uh, option A is Her. Option B, uh, The Village. Option C is Signs. And finally, D is Other. And if I would have put it like that, then we would have never seen a metric called Joker as the winner or Walk the Line or Gladiator, maybe the other category would have won. And I presume it it seems like it would, but we would never know which film that was. You could get some anecdotal comments. Some people comment. But the question was phrased with an eye to the, you know, most popular of Joaquin Phoenix movies. So, so... We wouldn't have supposed the Joker would have won, uh, depending on how the question was phrased. And then secondly, as LA brings up, uh, the result could be the Joker was the most recent in the mind of the viewers. Uh, it could also be a demographic, uh, you know, influence in that perhaps Twitter users are generally a little bit younger, and maybe a little bit younger people were drawn toward the jo- the Joker. 
Uh, it, I think it was very popular with young young audiences. Whereas maybe they've never seen The Gladiator because it's too old. Um, or uh, or even walk the line if it was too old. So maybe it was too old for them. So these are just some of the questions related to how data is collected, how data is presented, how it's analyzed, what the narrative uh, could be. And I want the listeners to note, just based on this example, that the person conducting the, the poll, the person uh, gathering the data set, the person choosing the metrics to present, uh, and and uh, and also the methodology behind which how they're gathered and presented. This is very important when we t- discuss uh, data sets. So now we're opening it up to the great issue of the day across the world, impact of COVID-19, both in a human health perspective and an economic perspective, this line that we talked about in, uh, in previous episodes. Uh, and so what I have done for gathering information for this podcast is I've just collected a few kind of mainstream traditional sets of data and LA is going to uh, bring up issues related to time and timelines. So as he does that, I'm going to refer and discuss some of these sets of data, if indeed uh, I don't know which uh, data sets LA will present. So that's a good thing. But we'll find ones that are related to it and have a and have a deeper a deeper discussion, a deep dive, and also a look at the future based on what we can tell. I think what we'll do first is we'll look at some timeline data. And um, then from there, we'll look at some demographic and statistical data. At least that's how I've kind of approached the subject. And the reason I've done it that way is because I think, as J. Scott brings up, um, it's in these two areas where most of the talk is centered when it comes to coronavirus in the media. So, for example... In regards to timeline, if you listen to the media, and I'm not going to focus on CNN or Fox or left or right, all I'm going to do is say, talk in generalities. So if you listen to the media, you basically will get two different approaches. You'll get one message that says, um, Trump messed this up. The administration did not act in the appropriate amount of time. They didn't put the testing forward. They didn't do what they should have done. Um, and it's mainly because of that that we're in the situation we're at now. Um, they, they don't focus on much else other than the testing is the big one, uh, as far as not having the testing available and then not reacting quick enough, those type things. Uh, that's one main message. There's different nuanced aspects of it, but that's a main message when we're looking at timelines and the other side is, uh, or the other message that you'll get is basically one against China and the WHO that, um, reactions were delayed because of the actions of China and the and WHO. And, you know, what you don't get in the messaging from, from either message is any kind of messaging or timeline activities that go against the narrative that they're pitching. And this is the problem with messaging today, whether it's Fox or CNN or, or MSNBC or even some podcasts that I've listened to. You're not getting the full data set in the timeline. So, what we want to try and do on Up Your Dialogue, because what we focus on here is full data sets. It's full um, factual information. Uh, we try and put it out there so that there, um, of course, we're going to have some bias. I don't think Jay Scott would say that he doesn't have a certain bias. Um, everyone's worldview brings it. I think everyone brings bias to the table. Obviously, I'm a conservative Christian, so I'm going to have some bias built in. Uh, Scott is... Uh, Jay Scott is a agnostic, and so he's going to have some bias built in, um, even though Jay Scott does get credit for being the ditch and switcher and uh, ultimately the the uh, 
the one co-host of Up Your Dialogue who uh, was able to predict the radicalization of the left. So uh, he gets credit for that. However, bias he still has, and we all have it. We all recognize it. But what we try and do is put that aside as much as we can and just look at what actually happened, what's the actual timeline data say. So we want to go through just a little bit and talk about the real facts as it's related to real timeline data. So let's talk about the early data that was coming in on the timeline of coronavirus. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the early data, and then we'll go over and see what, uh, what Jay Scott has to add to the discussion. But in the early in the early part of January, so this is prior to um, most of the coronavirus events, uh, on December 31st, 2019, uh, the CDC according to any, anything I could find, uh, became aware of the cases in China uh, that began developing uh, as reported from the Department of Health and Human Services, or, or HHS. So um, as far as any data has shown, December 31st was the date that the CDC became aware that something was going on in China. And then it was uh, in, on January 2nd that the, fa- the somewhat famous story uh, that isn't as talked about as much anymore, but this was kind of a bigger story earlier on, was when these um, doctors came forward uh, in China and started uh, talking about the outbreak. And China disciplined these doctors um, uh, for um, going to social media, going to these different avenues and talking about it. Uh, they discouraged. They were discouraging reporting on the coronavirus at this point. Um, nothing was publicly disclosed by China all the way until about January 20th. So that's another data point, January 20th, really being the first time that China publicly made any kind of um, effort to disclose anything to the public. So before that, they were disciplining doctors, trying to hold things down, even though they knew that something was going on you know, within China. Um, another data, another early data point was uh, January 8th, the CDC issued its first public alert about the coronavirus. So the CDC uh, became aware of it on December 31st. They issued a public alert on January 8th. Um, on January 9th, the WHO issued a statement actually naming the disease as a new coronavirus in Wuhan. So at that point, they were um, calling it coronavirus, but they were attaching Wuhan to it. Now, some of, there's been a lot of talk in the media about you know what we should call this. We should call it the China virus. And Trump, you know, his famous "it came from China" uh, statement that still makes me laugh. Um, when he was confronted by the reporter, why he was calling it the China virus? Well, because it comes from China. So we do know that the virus does come from China. Um, and in initial reports, it was uh, called Wuhan virus, even by the WHO. Um, and then uh, on January 14th, the WHO actually tweeted that investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities had found no clear evidence of human to human transmission. So by mid January, you have a Wuhan virus, as pronounced by the WHO. You have um, no human-to-human transmission, as pronounced by the WHO. You have the CDC that's aware something's going on in China, but China is not allowing the U.S. uh, CDC in or anyone in uh, to um, understand what might be going on. That doesn't happen until January 20th. So that was basically the first half of January. Um, I don't think at least up until January 20th that anyone other than China can be held to blame for not acting on coronavirus. I don't think that anybody could rightly say based on the timeline data that Trump or anyone in the U.S. outside of possibly the CDC could have done any more than they did because the CDC did know of the coronavirus uh, before January 20th. However, they really didn't have any data to go on um, up until January 20th because China wasn't allowing it. So um, 
the other interesting point, uh, the last interesting point I found was uh, during the week of January 6th, uh, when HHS, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, convened together and developed their own task force at that time, which did include Dr. Fauci. Um, there was someone by the name of Azar from HHS, uh, someone from by the name of Redfield, who I don't really know anything about, but he's uh, high up in the CDC apparently. And then Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So they did convene on January 6th to discuss coronavirus, but once again, didn't have a lot of data to go on because China wasn't allowing it until the 20th. So just from the early data points, um, uh, Mr. J. Scott, do you have any comments? Well, the early data points... As you add them up and compare the different dates of who acknowledged what or who was looking into what would become COVID-19, it's murky. Uh, and by that, I mean you have the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, uh, studying the problem but having limited uh, you know, knowledge. I've, I've seen WHO representatives interviewed about this. And the WHO, by all accounts, gets an awful lot of reports of possible flu-like conditions, possible diseases. Uh, and so they're getting dozens or hundreds or more of these feeders, these feeder informations that say we have an unexplained case of the flu. And so what is a body like the WHO? And we'll keep the, the U.S. branch of it out. But what is a body like the WHO supposed to do every time they get a field report of a possible flu that it wasn't understood on day one by the persons making the diagnosis. Well, they're not going to know that it's COVID-19 on day one. Uh, and so it takes a while. It takes a while for the WHO to figure out what they're doing. And it takes CDC a while to figure out what they're doing. And in terms of who got what information or reacted to it first, in my view, both branches were more or less reasonable, right? I'm not an epidemiologist, so... I can't, can't, do not speak with medical authority in saying that you should know within a certain number of days every time a strange flu pops up in various countries throughout the world. But it seems to me that if you identified that there is a serious problem within a month, uh, you know, that sounds like in the ballpark of reasonable, right? If you, if you started pushing buttons every time the flu came from 200 different countries as they're coming in day by day, you would have an overload of data and no real answers. Uh, and if you waited for a year or a decade, then you would have an unchecked, you know, rampant disease. But if you are analyzing it within the first weeks or within the first month, trying to get a grip on if what this problem is and how serious is it, now that seems to me on balance, kind of more or less in a ballpark way, sort of reasonable. Or I think pretty much everyone should be able to come to the conclusion that there wasn't enough data. Um, I think that's what Jay Scott's saying. I think that's correct. Um, and I think one could make the accusation based on the data that if there was any data to be had at this point in time, um, if the uh, convening of HHS and uh, Dr. Fauci's organization or the one that he leads, um, if they were able to convene and have some data at the time, maybe they could have come up with some stuff. But based on, um, based on China's not allowing for that information or that data to come out, there really wasn't much to go on. So um, at this point in the timeline, there... Uh, just wasn't much that could be acted on. So let's move forward. Um, January 20th was, was the date that, um, as far as I can see, that, that, that China issued its first public warning about coronavirus to its citizens and to 
those outside of China. So uh, the AP had information, had this information. Um, an investigation was done uh, by some reporting units at that time. Uh, Chinese authorities took additional confidential action to mobilize their pandemic response, but uh, they did not alert the public about all information, including uh, all of their mobilization activity. Um, there is some estimates that alerting the public six days earlier than January 20th um, might, have at, might have at least avoided some of the collapse of their own system, including uh, Wuhan and, and the province that Wuhan exists in. That's data according, according to epidemiologists. As J. Scott said, we're data people, we're not epidemiologists. So we have to listen to what uh, epidemiologists say about the data. And what epidemiologists have said, as far as I know, without political bents, um, is that if China would have come up even six days earlier with their January 20th response, so let's say January 12th or January 14th, um, that some of the um, issues with China in its own economy would have been in a better state. Now, this isn't even talking about the United States or Europe, Italy, or any, anything like that. We're just, just focused on, on China. Um, so we get to January 21st. And January 21st is the first reported case in the U.S. So there is no reported cases anyway of coronavirus in the U.S. until January 21st. So up until January 21st, um, whether you're the Center for Disease Control whether you're the Trump administration, whoever you are, um, there really is nothing to see or know of coronavirus prior to January 21st. Okay, so January 21st is the time where we found somebody in the United States, in Washington state, that was deemed to have coronavirus. But the person was also known to have returned from Wuhan um, for whatever reason. Whatever reason he was in Wuhan, uh, he was he came from Wuhan. So um, we didn't have known community spread at the time, uh, but we did have an infected person. Um, on January twenty second, somebody asked Trump about this infected person, and Trump's response was uh, um, he wasn't concerned about the tr- coronavirus um, that it you know it was under control, and um, it was just one person coming in from China, so everything was going to be fine. So a lot of times. We hear in the media that, you know, Trump said everything was fine about coronavirus. Well, you know, as far as him, the CDC and Anthony Fauci and everybody else, he really wasn't saying anything that, as far as we know, that anybody knew that China was having an issue. They had just talked about it the day before or maybe two days before. They had just made people aware of it. Um, they're, they're just... There was one person that, that was documented with coronavirus, but that person actually had come from Wuhan. So, oddly enough, the next day, the Chinese authorities on January 23rd shut down Wuhan. Uh, Wuhan's a city uh, containing 11 million people. Um, And this was really the first kind of action that China had taken in regard to coronavirus, at least on a mass scale. And that's when the U.S. response team started to really look at coronavirus and the situation in China. Uh, The Washington Post on January 23rd reported that Secretary Azar of Health and Human Services had instructed his team to establish a surveillance mechanism shortly thereafter, but the money and diagnostic tests uh, that the U.S. would need to complete this type of thing just weren't available. So, you know, testing uh, for any type of purposes at this point uh, wasn't on the table. It doesn't seem based on the timeline data. Um, Then on that same day, January 23rd, the World Health Organization reversed itself on the human-human transmission that it had previously said in earlier January was not the case, but that uh, human-to-human transition was something that um, was part of the coronavirus. Um, 
On January 24th, from what I have been able to find, was the first time that the U.S. Senate was briefed on the coronavirus by key health officials such as Fauci and and the others we've talked about. Um, It was at this point in time that several select um, senators sold their stock. Uh, This is a report that came out a while ago that was kind of bandied about in the media uh, I think it was majority Democrats, uh, one of them, including Dianne Feinstein, um, although allegations were never really pursued against her on that. Um, uh, stock was sold at that point in time based on information that the Senate had received on January 24th. So um, something was told to the U.S. Senate at that point in time, uh, something that at least worried enough people where stock was sold, uh, which is definitely uh, a no-no. Uh but then on January, on that same day, January 24th, President Trump came out and actually praised China for its coronavirus efforts. Um, I think at this point in time, nobody really understood anything except for that there was a problem in China and um, China had come forward about it on the 20th and that, you know, China was doing what they needed to do as far as locking down Wuhan and um, everything at this point kind of sounded on the up and up as far as China was concerned. Uh, and then two more cases were confirmed on January 26, uh, also by people who had returned from Wuhan. So up until January 26, there was no cases reported anyway of coronavirus in the United States that was community spread. Um, of course, now looking back, uh, we are thinking that there was, you know, a lot more people that were, um, asymptomatic with coronavirus in the United States at this point, a lot more people than just two or three. Um, I don't think the data has proved that out yet, but that at least is a theory looking back in hindsight. Then to kind of finish out the month of January, as far as the data goes in the timeline, um, it was January 29th was the day that the U.S. formally announced a coronavirus task force. This is the one now that we um, see um, like Vice President Pence and Fauci and Burks. Mick Mulvaney, uh, these people that were formed on January 29th, at least initially, um, it was reported that initially the task force was not um, did not have the same agenda that it does now or that it did later. Uh, it was basically a task force to look into what was going on in China. Um, at this point, it was still thought that the problem was basically China-based. So they were going to look at the China lockdown. Um, They were going to look into uh, different aspects of China, but they weren't really looking into testing uh, or any type of U.S.-related response uh, in regard to U.S. citizens about coronavirus. Um, On January 29th, the U.S. government evacuated the State Department in Wuhan, um, along with their families, about 195 people. Uh, The New York Times reported at this point in time that President Trump was told on January 29th of a memo uh, from Peter Navarro that the coronavirus could cause as many as 500,000 deaths and trillions in economic damage. That one perplexes me a little bit because I don't really know how Peter Navarro would come up with this based on the data. Um, At this point, unless there's something in the timeline that I don't know of, or maybe that maybe Jay Scott and his analysis has figure something out. But something I would like to hear from Jay Scott or really from anybody is how Navarro would have come up with the idea that 500,000 people, um, you know, could come up with coronavirus based on what we know as of January 29th. Uh, further on January 30th, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Alex Azar, uh, warned President Trump about the possi- possibility of a pandemic. Not really that, you know, would directly impact the U.S. as it has, but a pandemic nonetheless. Um, So some information was available to uh, the Health and Human Services and to Peter Navarro that this could 
progressed to a problem that wasn't just within China. Uh, possibly it could have been because of some of the travel outside of China um, that could, you know, spread, cause a spread. Um, and maybe that's why uh, Trump puts into place the travel ban, the travel ban from China, based on what he's being told at this point. Um, on January 30th, the first case of person-to-person transmission is confirmed in Chicago. So on January 30th, we do have some data as far as community spread goes. Um, and then on January 30th, the World Health, World Health Organization, the WHO, named the coronavirus outbreak that, in, that originated in Wuhan a public health emergency of international concern. Um, the statement praised the impressive Chinese response and the lockdown of Wuhan and in the, in the province. Um, uh, the WHO released another statement at this time, said the committee believes that it is still possible to interrupt virus spread provided that countries put in place strong measures to detect disease early, isolate and treat cases, trace contacts, and promote social distancing measures commensurate with the risk. However, the federal government and U.S. states did not direct their populations to social distance at this time, um, except for international travel, such as the, uh, the lockdown from any type of China travel. On January 31st, another case of a person who returned from the Wuhan was confirmed in California. Uh, that was the seventh known case at the time in the U.S., um, and then on January 31st, the Trump administration, through the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, directed a public health emergency and imposed a mandatory 14-day quarantine for any U.S. citizens who had visited the Hubei province in China, where Wuhan is located, uh, within the preceding two weeks. So at this time, the focus of uh, HHS and the Trump administration was still on China. Those who had come from China, uh, given that you only had human human spread in one case in Chicago, and that may or may not have been from someone who had come from Wuhan. So the idea was that um, if you could stop people from coming here from China, you would be able to control what was going on as far as the pandemic. So if nobody was coming here from Wuhan and you could stop it, then you would greatly limit whatever was going on in the United States from a pandemic standpoint. So this is where uh, Trump institutes the ban, and um, and he takes credit for that, and to some aspect, rightly so. Uh, he did put the ban in place after he talking to HHS um, and uh, you know about the issue. Um, but there also is data um, that, uh, for example, from the Washington Post, that reported that three hundred three hundred thousand people traveled to the U.S. from China. Um, during the prior month. Uh, the New York Times had reported that over 40,000 people traveled from China to the U.S. even after uh, the the ban on January 31st and around 430,000 total between December 31st, uh, the time of the disclosure of the outbreak from China. Um, so uh, there was a ban put in place. Uh, it was kind of a partial ban as far as uh, you were to be quarantined if you did come from China. And then... Um, Eventually, China travel was cut off, bringing us to the end of January, heading into February. So uh, a lot of um, outrage in the media is that Trump didn't act fast enough um, up until February 1st, while others, uh, including Trump himself, say, hey, based on what I knew, it was a China issue. I did what I could to you know, quarantine those coming from China or to stop travel from China completely. I did it fairly early on. I did it based on information I had, uh, which at the time really was the best I could do. And um, the one thing that I didn't really hear a lot about of in the messaging was the idea that hundreds of thousands of people really had already been traveling between the time that China had uh, really disclosed coronavirus um, back in early January up until the point where the travel ban was initiated. 
I don't know who knew that data point. I don't know if anyone had discussed that data point or if it's being reported after the fact. But if you knew that many people had come to the United States from China, then I guess potentially on that data point, you could have made a case, like apparently Mr. Navarro did, that you could have a bigger problem in the United States and maybe maybe more action should be taken at that point. So based on the full month of January data points in the timeline, uh, what do you think? What do you think, Jay Scott? Do you think that um, what Trump, what the Trump administration did and what HHS was reporting and what the conclusions were, um, were, you know, were, I don't want to say accurate or legitimate, but more I want to say, uh, do you think they, they acted based on the data points that they had properly? Or um, do you think that um, more could have been done as of January 31st. Yeah, January is the, the month where even the beginnings of this first came to light. And I'll make a few points. One, it's clear that, that China was not forthcoming in disclosing the data that they have. And I'm not sure that they've ever been forthcoming in regards to that. But I don't think we should be surprised by that. A secretive Chinese state-controlled uh, government media uh, punishing their own doctor who was the one clamoring about this uh, COVID, and and I believe that doctor also perished as a result of his efforts uh, treating the virus. Um, but there are a couple of mind-boggling things, which is this, I, and I'm putting these into my, my mind-boggling danger uh, bucket for now, and we'll revisit them. But one of them is it wasn't clear, and then it was, and then it wasn't, and then it was, that this coronavirus was transmittable from human-to-human contact. And so if that's not established then you wouldn't uh, treat it as seriously as if it as if it hadn't been established. So we've got some crisscross messaging and flip-flopping there. Then that makes a delay in the response more understandable. The other part is that was not known at first is the asymptomatic carrier. So you bring up the point that people had traveled here from China before Trump imposed the flight ban and after the first case of COVID in China in December. But a lot of that, you have to wonder, are is that data associated with incoming traffic from China? And if it was, was it all coming from Wuhan or Hubei province? And that's not clear to me at all, right? So if you're collecting data of people coming from China, were they coming from Beijing? Were they coming from Shanghai? Were they coming from Hong Kong? Had those places been infected by carriers, human-to-human transmission, or asymptomatic carriers within that time frame? So you've got Trump banning the flights, but it's not clear which parts of China have already come down with COVID. We know Wuhan and did, but what about the rest of China? Well, maybe so. So again, that makes the data complicated. So the danger points I'm putting in my bucket are, we didn't understand it was transmittable by human to human methods. And secondly, we didn't know about the asymptomatic carriers. Thirdly, we didn't know how long a person carries it before they exhibit symptoms, right? So with a flu, a, a normal seasonal flu, You feel symptoms, and that's when you're contagious. You're coughing on somebody, and that's an indication that you're contagious. But that contagion comes within a couple of days or something like that. With COVID, it's a couple of days to 14, and they're asymptomatic, so people have no idea. And they're human-to-human carriers, but that wasn't clear at first either. So when you add all that stuff up, you've got a murky beginning to this, and I think it's, again, understandable in January, a little bit of confusion on the part of organizations like the WHO and HHS and the President of the United States. So the picture of January that you present on the timeline is reasonable and seems accurate, but also we should note the whole sense of gray and murkiness, right? So at the beginning, we don't want to have 
a huge human ruckus over every case of the flu that's not fully diagnosed, or else you'd have hundreds or thousands of disparate cases and you wouldn't know which one to react to. You'd have too much data. And then in January, we're starting to realize that the data we do get is pretty unclear. Okay, so let's move into February and see what data points we had on the timeline. I agree that um, January presented a murky case. Um, I actually am not really sure by the January data that we can really fault anyone except for China in regard to the pandemic overall. Um, you know, I'm not even sure that we can really lash out against the WHO at this point. Uh, at first, they probably, based on the data they were getting from China, they probably didn't know of the human human uh, aspect of COVID-19. Um, and so they reversed themselves when they did have a better understanding of it once China revealed uh, more of its data and locked the province down. Uh, they First, they locked Wuhan down and then the entire province. So I think that the, we can see that with the withholding of data is very dangerous in this type of environment where days, uh, forget about weeks, but days, according to epidemiologists, days of, not, of non-action in the case of a pandemic is time you can't get back and time that is, is very serious to waste. And so having data available, uh, very important. So uh, let's look, uh, February 3rd, the members of Congress signed a letter to CDC Director Redfield highlighting the urgency of distributing a rapid diagnostic kit that could be processed locally rather than centrally at the CDC in Atlanta, which they referred to as an unsustainable bottleneck as the number of suspected case cases begin to rise. So uh, 49 members of Congress. Now, I could not find where these 49 members of Congress came from. I couldn't find exactly were they Republicans, were they Democrats, or what have you. But um, at least 49 members of Congress were starting to think about diagnostic testing as early as February 3rd and bringing this up to, to the CDC, that having centralized testing, which apparently was the protocol, uh, would be unsustainable. Now, from all I can tell, the CDC um, definitely didn't act on that on February 3rd or even February 4th or even February 5th. Um, on February 6th, the CDC began sending 90 of its own viral detection tests to state-run labs, which discovered the tests were inadequate and viral samples had to be shipped to the Atlanta CDC lab instead. Um, also on February 6th, the WHO director general stated that we have shipped 250,000 tests to more than 70 laboratories around the world, and we are training lab workers to use them. Researchers at Stanford and other laboratories had developed tests following the WHO protocol, but relatively tight rules at the FDA discouraged them from using them. These rules were not relaxed until early March. So as of February 6th, it seems based on the data that some people were realizing that the testing was inadequate. Now, you're hearing a lot of testing in the current day, um, or I should say you're hearing a lot of media attention around the testing now as to uh, why the slow response, you know, why wasn't testing uh, better ready? So you go back into the timeline um, back into like uh, 2009 to 2017, uh, and you see some basic failures in historic timelines regarding um, looking at the SARS uh, breakout uh, when testing wasn't really um, hammered at that point. I mean, the, the, the impact to the U.S. by SARS was um, minimal in regard to the spreading of the disease. Um, it, I think 
SARS was more lethal for those who ended up getting it, especially children. However, uh, not nearly as many people got it. It, it wasn't as contagious uh, from what I've looked at or from what I remember from SARS. So the testing apparatus, I don't think was tested. But there was um, different reports, uh, not only from the Obama administration, but even as far back as the Bush administration um, and different things that they were faced with that uh, testing and stockpiles of things uh, probably weren't where they should be to deal with a national pandemic, or I should say an international pandemic. Um, but of course, we hadn't really seen a uh, international pandemic. Um, you know, you go all the way back to 1918 and the Spanish flu. Uh, it's probably the last time that something on a, on a mass scale where I believe somewhere around 700,000 Americans died in that one and millions of people around the globe. Um a lot of time passed since the Spanish flu. And, you know, it's hard to say that you can fault certain administrations for not putting massive amounts of monies into stockpile and to um, testing apparatus, given the fact that it wasn't something front and center, um, even in SARS. So nonetheless, you had some discussion of this testing problem as early as February 5th, February 6th timeframe. Um so not a, not a lot that I found happens really between the 6th and the 12th. Um, from February 12th to 15th, three more cases were confirmed. Uh, all travelers from Wuhan and they and and all the Wuhan travelers, everyone had that uh, was confirmed with coronavirus was quarantined from what I could tell uh, up until that point. Um, in the second half of February is when things started to ramp up a bit. Um, um, on February 20th and 21st, two more cases of people who had returned from China were confirmed in California. Uh, the first case of community transmission, of true community transmission, uh, because it had no known origin as far as where it, it could have taken place at. The one in Chicago that had come up a little bit earlier, uh, I think that was determined that it could have been Wuhan spread. Um, but there was no known case for this particular uh, incident in California on February 20th. Um, actually in Solano County, which I used to live in that particular county when I was in the Air Force. So that's why it kind of sticks out in my brain. Um, then a second case of unknown origin was confirmed only two days later. That one was also in California. Uh, these were followed by cases in Oregon and then the bigger one in Washington State. Um, but on February 24th, the word from the president, uh, from President Trump, was that coronavirus was uh, very much under control in the USA and CDC and World Health Organization officials had been working hard and working very smart. Those are Trump's words on February 24th. Um, on February 25th, Secretary Azar testified before the U.S. Senate, summarized the, the National Geographic had reported a summary of his testimony, reporting that the strategic national stockpile had just 30 million surgical masks and 12 million respirators in reserve. An additional 300 million of each could be required to protect health workers. HHS said it intended to purchase as many as half a billion respirators and surgical face masks over the next year and a half. A previous 2015 CDC study found that seven billion respirators might be necessary to handle a severe respiratory outbreak. So as of February 25th, uh, we are noticing that the testing apparatus isn't quite where it needs to be and that our stockpiles uh, wouldn't be where they would need to be if, in fact, a international pandemic of great magnitude was um, going to take place. Uh, it wasn't necessarily seen at this point in time that it was taking place, but if it were to take place, we wouldn't be prepared for that type of thing. Um, uh, I think this is kind of information that was 
that was known um, previous to this administration even, uh, but just wasn't acted on uh, for reasons that it's just not politically easy to act on something that isn't right in front of you. Um, on February 26, uh, President Trump had a news conference. Um, he was quoted as saying, when you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down close to zero, that's a pretty good job we've done. So this was also bandied about in the media, about Trump's comments about how uh, there was 15 people and it was soon going to be zero. Well, uh, this is something that um, the left's messaging tries to show that Trump wasn't taking this seriously at, the, at this point in time based on the data. But um, in the United States, neither really was anybody else taking this seriously. And I'm not sure that the data was showing even as late as February 26th that uh, it wasn't something controllable from a China perspective. In other words, like I said before, in early February, and in late January, it seems based on the timeline data that this was seen as something that was basically controllable if we just locked down China. China locked down its, its area, its province. Um, we had instituted bans. We have instituted quarantines for those who had been on the province and had come to America. Um, like I said before, there was some reporting that there was more people than 15. Uh, but like Jay Scott had brought up, I don't think the reporting or the data shows that those couple hundred thousand people that came from China actually came from Wuhan or came from the even came from the province. Um, so uh, on February 29th, the first death from coronavirus in the U.S. is reported at Evergreen Health Medical Center in Kirkland, Washington, followed by two other confirmed cases, those in nursing homes in the same city. New cases continue to show up in California, Illinois, following February 29th um, and on March 1st. So we don't uh, get our first death from coronavirus until February 29th, 2020. And that is in Washington, which was um, uh, an area that had heavy traveling from uh, either Wuhan or the province uh, that Wuhan is, is in. So based on the February data, uh, what are your thoughts? Yes, I think you do well to ask the questions about appropriate preparedness. And so I didn't know that much about it, but recently I've had occasion to have a look at some of these pandemics and SARS, uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, of which COVID-19 is a kind. Um, but SARS was 2003, and so within a year, there were globally about 8,000 cases. That's the total number of cases uh, in the world who had SARS, 8,098. So 8,000 people in the entire world got this, of which more or less 800 people died. So you've got a 10% death rate from SARS, a really horrific death rate, uh, you know, surpassing that of something like the Spanish flu. But you have a, a data set of 8,000 people who contracted this um, virus. So it's so small that it's hard to believe that, that the entire world, or the United States in particular, should have been designing a pandemic uh, method, be it centralized testing or local testing or the accumulation of PPE, personal protective equipment, based on an, a virus that affected 8,000 people across the entire world. It's too small. Uh, the larger one was H1N1, from 2009, and there it was estimated that around a more or less, plus or minus of a billion people got this H1N1 flu. Uh, 700, 700 million being the low estimate and 1.4 being billion being the higher estimate. So plus or minus of a billion people contracted this. But I looked at the total deaths uh, from that, which were 18,000. 
18,036 deaths um, worldwide. So compared to a billion people, this is a tiny percent of where it's fatal. Not 1%, not 0.1%, not even one one hundredth of a percent, but more like one thousandth of one percent. And so it's hard for me to believe that the world, or the U.S. in particular, should have been prepared based on that particular flu. Uh, So either SARS with only affecting 8,000 people in the world, 10% of whom died, around 800 people in the world, or H1N1, which did have a widespread throughout the world, but a very low death uh, rate, such as lower than the seasonal flu. So we don't have a lot to go with if you're looking at the last 10 or 20 years um, in terms of volume to motivate comprehensive preparedness. So to me, again, uh, I don't hold out heavy blame for an organization like the WHO or the, or the reaction of the American uh, health system and president or Congress in particular, because we haven't had anything to go on in, in that, you know, recent, in this century, in recent decades. Now you could look at historical pandemics and say, well, the Spanish flu was a big deal, which is true. Uh, or something like the Black Death, which was a big deal, really big deal, also true. But these are a hundred years ago uh, or, you know, over 500 years ago. So again, how do we be prepared for a global comprehensive pandemic solution every time somebody has, you know, a flu-like symptom in the world? So you hear President Trump at the end of February saying this is under control. Well, why is he saying that? Today, it may look foolish if you take it out of context because... April is different than February of 2020 by leaps and bounds. But on the other hand, as LA pointed out until the very end of February, I think it was the 29th, you had no fatalities. So you have a president saying everything's under control, everything is going well, but the number of fatalities when he said it in America was zero. So I think most people would say, well, if nobody died from it, it seems reasonable that it's under control. So we're still hanging in there on that in February. The problem I have with February is this notion of centralized testing not working. And here I think, you know, find examples where centralized testing either works or doesn't and act accordingly. In other words, don't react to it after you think you may have a problem and say, then now it's up to, you know, localities to do their own testing. But then at the same time, put roadblocks up in the way of getting those tests approved. So you do have a kind of a stunted start uh, in America for coronavirus testing. And I think that that comes out from February data in an anecdotal way. By around the end of February, this coronavirus was starting to, in the last half of February, come across my own personal radar. And I would see it on the news and wonder, you know, uh, how big of a deal is this? Nobody's died. It's never transmitted from human to human, except maybe once it did, or maybe somewhere else it might. Um, But I do notice that the last two times I did writing in a cafe which is a regular occurrence for me. That's where I write a good portion of my, my fiction. The last dates I wrote in a cafe were March 1st and March 6th, uh, and March 6th being the last day I went to a cafe for that purpose. So, and I think a few days later, one of the cafes, maybe three days later, one of the cafes where I wrote was actually closed. So an early, you know, total closure of a business. And so, yeah, we're still in February, but in February, does this really look like a problem? Well, I wasn't sure. I, my guess was probably not. Uh, you know, uh, H1N1 didn't kill very many people by the numbers, and something like SARS, 
it didn't affect many people. So when was the last time we saw a globally impactful, huge pandemic? Well, if you're talking huge global impact, then you're looking at 1918. That's before my time. And now I'm a student of history and, in fact, a student of early 20th century. So I'm aware of the Spanish flu of 1918 historically, but I've never seen it. My father's never seen it. And his father never saw it either. So, so it's a little bit outside of human experience, including Trump's own personal experience. However old you may think he is, uh, or Biden or Sanders for that matter, none of them were alive in 1918. So they're not over 100 years old, at least not yet. Um, and so in February, I was wondering if this would be a problem, but I still would have guessed that it probably wasn't a global epic proportion problem. Um, and I think many officials in, in world governments and in U.S. government wouldn't have really imagined at the end of February that this would be what it is a month or a month and a half later. So, so if that answers some of your questions for where, what it looked like uh, in February based on this timeline, then that was kind of the way I was looking at it. And I don't think I was alone either. Uh, yeah, Jay Scott brings up some valid points. I think the most valid point he brings up uh, is the data as it relates to time. So the the Spanish flu happening you know, at the turn of the 20th century um, is far enough removed from us that the data that can be gathered from that really can't be acted on in any serious way, um, you know, currently, whether it's politically or, or any other way. Um, I don't know what is expected of either HHS or the Trump administration to get up and say, okay, um, you know, 15 people have been impacted by coronavirus. Uh, a, a couple people have died by from coronavirus. Um, and we need to lock the whole country down and test every single person. And this needs to be done tomorrow. I mean, I don't know based on the data how anyone could look at this and say, well, based on based on where we were at the end of February, beginning of March, Trump didn't act quick enough. HHS didn't make the right decisions. Even the CDC, who I think is probably the most culpable if you're going to point the finger at anybody, even the CDC with its supposedly bottlenecked centralized approach, um, really didn't have a huge reason to change that approach other than the recommendation of, um, you know, a couple people at the time where they needed to look at their um, processes or processes and, and, and maybe decentralize the process in the case of a pandemic that could occur. Not in the case of a pandemic that's, that's occurring, but one that could occur, I think is what was being talked about at the time. And based on what was going on at the time, I could see why that recommendation, recommendation might've been put out there. Um, now, as J. Scott brings up, I mean, H1N1 impacted a lot of people from a case standpoint. I mean, how could you look at, at the beginning of March, end of February, and come to a conclusion that coronavirus was not going to be just like H H1N1? I think you might have made the case that it wasn't going to be like SARS. It was going to be as deadly as SARS, um, and it was going to probably be more contagious than SARS. But what data point would you point out to say this is going to be worse than H1N1? And we didn't lock everything down for H1N1. Um, and nobody faults anyone for the reaction to H1N1. So it's hindsight um, hindsight reaction or hindsight reporting or hindsight narrative, I think, that is, that is trying to lay the blame at the feet of someone for data points um, prior to March 1st. 
Um, I just don't see it. Relying on data from 1918 is not something that you can act on in 2020. And all the data points that Jay Scott brings up and that I've brought up um, from SARS and H1N1 may be things that you could rightly look at uh, from the HHS perspective or the CDC's perspective. Really, you don't really call it, call anything different than uh, how those responses were formulated to those other uh, situations in 2002 and 2000, um, 2009. So as we move into March, I think it was March, early March, uh, was the first time that I saw uh, Governor Cuomo come on the scene and he announced the state's first re- first reported case of COVID-19. It was a woman in her late 30s who apparently contracted the virus while traveling in Iran. Uh, she was self-isolating at home. I think I remember hearing about this particular person. Um, I, I think I just happened to catch this on the TV as I was watching the news. Um, so March March 1st and March 2nd, first time that we have any report of anything happening in New York as far as uh, coronavirus case reporting goes. Uh, Oregon confirmed its second case. It was a household contact um, so a possible community spread there. Uh, on March 2nd, the total coronavirus case, reported cases anyway, in the U.S. was 100. Uh, and this 100 included the repatriated citizens from Wuhan. Um, so as of March 2nd, very little impact, known impact to the, to the United States. Um, on March 3rd, when the state had no confirmed cases, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio uh, canceled the Arnold Classic due to coronavirus concerns. Uh, that was a move um, that the Washington Post reported as radical. On March 3rd, Arizona's Department of Health and Human Services reported a new confirmed case in Maricopa County. Maricopa County is a place where Jay Scott and I are very much aware of. It's where we both lived and worked um, uh, recently. A man in his 20s who had made contact with a case outside of Arizona, uh, and he was also isolated and was also quarantined in his home. So uh, people kind of onesie and twosie-ish around the country are coming up with coronavirus. They have somewhere around 100 cases, but that was including the repatriated cases from Wuhan. You've got a very small amount of possible community spread as late as March 4th. Only one case reported at that time in New York. Um, And uh, you have really uh, Governor DeWine in Ohio being the first high-level official that really cancels or locks anything down, that's as early as March 3rd. Um, On March 4th, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security confirmed that a contract medical screener for the CDC working at Los Angeles International Airport tested positive for coronavirus, uh, and that individual was self-isolated. So when the onesie and twosie cases are propping up um, and the repatriations are coming in, so those who were seen as people who had slipped into the the U.S., they were being dealt with. They were either self-quarantining or being quarantined. So it's not like there's any data or any reporting that shows that those cases weren't taken seriously. And you had at least one governor that was already canceling events. Um, According to March 6th, 10 states reported first cases of coronavirus on March 6th. This was Hawaii, Utah, Nebraska, Kentucky, Indiana, Minnesota, Connecticut, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Oklahoma. Um, Many of these cases were associated with passengers from that cruise ship, the Grand Princess, which has been in the, which was in the media quite a bit, uh, it was being held off the coast of California. Uh, testing on the ship revealed 21 positives. Uh, there was also six deaths reported. That was the largest death total, I believe, up until this point. At least that was reported as coronavirus related. Um, at this point, you did have um, some wide state um, acknowledgement of coronavirus. So you had 
many states um, acknowledging that they had a few cases, uh, two cases here, three cases there, uh, so forth and so on. Um, you had the same type of thing going on between March 6th, March 7th, March 8th. You have more states coming online showing that they have a few cases here and there. Uh, March 9th, Governor DeWine in Ohio uh, is the first that I can see to declare a state of emergency. Uh, he did that after Ohio reported its first case of COVID-19. Um, so other states have had had, had uh, reports of Corona-19 or COVID-19, and uh, but Mike DeWine was very quick to shut things down in Ohio um, as, a res- as a response to what was actually taking place. Um, it was also reported the Trump administration on March 9th postponed the Director of National Intelligence annual U.S. Worldwide Threat Assessment, which warns that the U.S. remains unprepared for a global pandemic. Um, that was reported from certain um, avenues through certain networks. Uh, it's not 100% corroborated, at least from what I can tell. Um, on March 11th, the convert, confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States passed 1,000. So uh, you, you're going from basically the beginning of March at 100 cases, and you get to around closing, getting close to mid-March, and you've added about 1,000 cases, and more states are coming online. Um, President Trump is questioning the Oval Office at this point about the spread of coronavirus, um, and to which he responds, the vast majority of Americans, the risk is very, very low. Um, I don't see any problem with the response. I, I think even now the risk of uh, the majority of Americans remains very, very low. And we're going to talk about the data on that um, when we talk about um, modern day data as we see it now. Um, on March 12th, we go past 1,500 cases. On March 13th, we pass 2,000 cases um, in the U.S. It's at this time that you start seeing um, the sports teams cancel things. Uh, the National Hockey League tells its players to self-quarantine. Um, in a ten- and at this point, they were trying to save the season. Um, uh, the NCAA uh, started to cancel March Madness at this point. Um, so it was around mid-March, maybe March 12th, March 13th, that you had some major cancellations by organizations. Um, President Trump takes a COVID-19 test after coming into contact with several people who it was found had contracted the disease but were found negative. So that's on March 13th. Um, and more and more states, including Alabama, Illinois, Kentucky, are still reporting their first cases. So states, uh, as late as March 13th, still reporting their first cases of COVID-19. Um, and March 15th, the CDC issued guidance recommending against any gathering of 50 or more people for an eight week period. So, uh, at this point in mid March, the CDC comes out with really what I can tell is its first guidance to the American public as far as limiting gathering. Um, in my own recollection, I think this is the first time I can remember, uh, any type of impact to me directly. Um, North Carolina, the state that I currently reside in, uh, ordered that the schools were, were to be closed for two weeks. So I remember when that happened, that was executive order by Governor Roy Cooper. Um, uh, New York City Mayor de Blasio announced New York City public schools would close March 15th. That's the largest public school system in the country. Um, uh, Governor DeWine, Ohio, ordered all bars and restaurants to close at 9 p.m. on March 15th. That was the first type of closure of that of its kind. So by mid-March, you've got major um, announcements being made. Um, You've got schools being closed. Uh, The United States is at about 2,700 death uh, case count. You still only have a few deaths, Um, but it's being realized around mid-March that this is 
probably a bigger problem than we thought. Uh, March 16th, President Trump issued new guidelines urging people to avoid social gatherings of more than 10 people and to restrict discretionary travel. Uh, He stopped short at this point of ordering a quarantine or a curfew, but he said restrictions may last until July or August. So I think March 16th is really when President Trump, for the first time, at least acknowledges anyway, that um, we're going to need to put some some guidelines in place to control this thing. Um, As we move into the later part of March, um, which is getting closer to our current day, uh, which is mid-April, so now we're looking at about a month ago, um, when you hit March 20th, the U.S. has 19,000 cases of COVID-19, and we have 250 deaths. So the case rate and the death rate start to increase quite a bit between March 15th and March 20th. Um, Each state at this point has multiple cases of COVID-19, some states larger than others, and states start to lock down. So um, what the timeline tells us is that it really wasn't until mid-March or maybe a little earlier that anyone was really acting on the COVID-19 data in regard to a pandemic that was going to be very impactful in the U.S. up until that time. Um, it just wasn't seen as a U.S. problem. It doesn't seem, based on the data, by anyone, um, not just Trump, but by anyone except for a very small amount of people. Um, you could probably give Governor DeWine um, you know, some props for being a governor who probably acted the quickest, um, and possibly uh, Peter Navarro, maybe... Um, uh, some senators or some representatives or at least some people in Congress that had suggested that we take greater measures. Um, but for the most part, nobody really was looking at this being a pandemic that's going to impact the U.S. at a large level, uh, really until you get into March 10th through the March 15th time period. And then you really start see, seeing people locked down on this thing, um, especially from the state perspective. Um, until you get to March 20th, when you see 250 deaths, almost 20,000 cases of COVID-19. Um, uh, some, some other data points in March that I thought was interesting would be the, uh, the stimulus bills that, um, that we see now that uh, were supposed to give Americans a financial boost. Um, that was finally dealt with on March, 25, March 25th. Uh, it was kind of bandied around in the Congress uh, for several days um, up until that point. Uh, we, we see different states that are going to be impacted on a much greater level, like New York, where the cases really start to mount. Michigan has more cases than normal uh, or than, than many other states, I should say. Um, Illinois was another one. Washington in the beginning was, but they kind of started to level off because it was more about an influx of people coming in from China, I think, uh, that caused that blip. California uh, locks down pretty heavily at this time. Um, And uh, that's kind of what is going on in the U.S. around mid to late March. Um, The cases continue to mount more, more institutions and states locked down. And um, it's starting to become a realization that uh, we're going to have to lock down as a nation. And because of that, we're going to need a lot of economic infusion as far as money goes into the system and in order to make up for this. Uh, there's really no reports of, you know, focus on testing at this point. So I think you can rightly say that uh, the focus really isn't on testing in the beginning. As the cases start to mount, um, the system just isn't set up to test uh, for, you know, a mat- for a large pandemic. Um 
And so that's just simply not going on at the time as the cases are rising in the state. So um, you have any comments on uh, March timeline data? Yeah, the interesting thing about March uh, for me is that the big question mark uh, in the minds of many was what is the death rate of this virus? And so is it going to be like a normal seasonal flu death rate? Is it going to be like a bad seasonal flu death rate? Is it going to be like uh, SARS with a 10% death rate? Uh, Is it going to be like the Black Plague? You know, a 50% death rate? Is it going to be like H1N1? A 0.001% death rate. And none of that stuff was clear in March uh, based on the data. And so... So, again, we're taking steps to recognize, and now you're starting to see state-level and regional recognition of the fact that this is a pandemic, an epidemic that spreads to multiple countries and regions. But if this had been H1N1, and 99.999% of people survive it, would we have shut down all the states and regions starting in March? Well, we, we had H1N1 in 2009. So we have the example there where we did not have an economic shutdown because of this. So if you thought that COVID was going to have the mortality rate of an H1N1, you wouldn't have reacted to it hardly at all. Um, And if you thought it was going to be something like SARS, then maybe 8,000 people in the world will get it. Uh, and, And whatever the death rate is, but it's such a small population that no one will shut down the economy. Also, if it's a seasonal flu. We have seasonal flus in this country, and indeed the world has them every year. That's hence the word seasonal. Um, and so we don't shut down the economy of the U.S. and many nations because of that. So at what point would we shut down a national economy? And I thought in March, we don't know what the mortality rate is. So I'm hearing different epidemiologists theorize that maybe it's half a percent, maybe it's one, maybe it's three uh, percent. And CNN comes out with uh, online with this uh, mortality rate tester. So if you log on to CNN.com and I don't know, LA probably doesn't. I'm not sure how many of our listeners do, but if you logged on to CNN.com on the front page, you could play with their little tester uh, tool and say, well, you know, if it has a mortality rate of uh, 2% and the impact is, you know, to 1% of the population, or if it's 10% of the U.S. population, you start playing around with this indicator, and that's where you get mortality predictions of things like, commonly, an average of, if you fiddle around with the indicator sort of in the middle, you get about 2 million deaths on the CNN tool. 2.1 million was the one I got, and I've heard that as a higher estimate of the early earlier March estimates of possible mortality rates. And that's, you know, a fair amount of people. Uh, in in a nation whose population is in the magnitude of 300 uh, plus million. So, but 2 million deaths, well, uh, that's, you know, a fairly large uh, impact to your general population. And that was just one of the estimates. So if you max it out and say, you know, 30% of the population is infected with this forthcoming virus, and it has a, I think, you know, almost mercifully, CNN cut it off, I can't remember if it was at 3 or maybe 6% or something like that, but basically you could fiddle around with the indicator and you get tens of millions of people dead, depending on how you're playing with the tool. And you have, you know, experts and doctors speaking almost accordingly. We don't know what the impact is going to be. And I'm going to take that data point and stick it in my mind-boggling slash danger bucket, right? So we have the possibility, the denial, and the, and the proof of human-to-human uh, transmission. 
you have asymptomatic carriers that could be anywhere between 25 and 50% of all people that have the coronavirus. Let's say half the people have ever had it, don't even know, did not exhibit a single symptom and have no idea. So now you've got 50% of COVID infections being spread around by people that have no idea they have it. Um, and then finally, you don't know what the mortality rate of this thing is. And answers varied widely, but it trended toward very, you know, being on the high side, certainly uh, compared to something like H1N1, and certainly compared to the seasonal flu. So uh, the other thing is, it came to our attention that we had no vaccine for this, right? So generally speaking, you get a seasonal flu and you can go get vaccinated, your flu shot. If enough people do, the theory is they develop a herd immunity, uh, or if you do in particular, then you've been exposed to that virus and develop uh, antibodies to it so that if you get the real one, you already have the antibodies so it doesn't affect you as badly. That's the theory of the flu vaccine. On the other hand, what happens when you get the flu? Now, we can ask if LA's ever had the flu before, but I'm going to assume his answer is yes. It's very common over the course of your life to get the flu at some point or points. I have. Um, and I had two times. I think I was maybe in my early 30s where I had uh, pneumonia. And I went to the doctor and they diagnosed it and said, well, you have the flu and you have pneumonia and uh, take a couple of days off work. Here's some antibiotics, get some rest, drink plenty of liquids and get the hell out. That's what they told me. They did a, you know, I think in one case they did a chest x-ray and so forth. And that was their determination. They gave me the antibiotics some many years ago and I recovered on those occasions based on the treatment that I was given. Would I have recovered with no antibiotics? Well, who knows? That wasn't the branch I went down. But being as I was plus or minus the age of 30, I would like to think I probably would have survived. I'm guessing, but it was painful enough and creepy enough that I wanted to consult a doctor and, and be treated for it. Well, with COVID-19, right? Put this in your danger bucket. There's no vaccine. There is no known treatment, right? In March. So... All you get are advice like, like self-isolate and wash your hands. Well, why? Not because entirely because it's going to save you, this social distancing, but because you will not pr present it to it, as many people and you won't overwhelm the healthcare system. So in March, this was part of the big American fear. We're going to overwhelm our healthcare system, meaning our hospitals are going to be full to capacity. We won't have room for new patients. We won't have PPE protective equipment, and in particular, we won't have presumably life-sustaining ventilators. And so now you have this collective cultural fear that everyone's going to be going to the hospital, there's no real treatment, and you, they're going to run out of equipment, so you're going to be left, depending on when you get in there or what your criteria are, you're going to be left in the hallway and you're going to die. And this is going to happen to many Americans and possibly millions of Americans. And so... The culture, the collective conscious of America is starting to bug out by the end of March. Um, and so you get, you know, Trump on board advising social distancing. You've got some governors earlier than others. The governor of Arizona's stay-at-home order was on March 30th. And already you're getting clamoring on all the media channels, particularly of the left. The left channels, let's face it who are saying, I can't believe the governor of this state and that state and the following remaining 20 states, 10 states, 7 states are not putting this quarantine lockdown order because they are sacrificing the lives of, of so much of their population of their state. And when you look at the data as it's emerging in March, you know, some states have only had their first case. Uh, and so at the end of March, the, there's a difference between the type of spread that is in a place like Wyoming, for example, and a place like uh, New York. And I don't even really mean New York State, but what we're really talking about is New York City. 
And New York City is a very unique, uh, a unique case in that uh, it has a more impacted uh, caseload uh, than other nations that have had a huge problem. Italy, Spain, China, whatever. New York City itself is up there among the top three uh, places, nations that have been affected by COVID-19 nations. This is a city. Well, this is totally different than a rural county, right, in Wyoming or uh, North Dakota or West Virginia or even Arizona. A rural county in Arizona, as of April 17th, I'm cheating and skipping ahead here, but there are rural counties in Arizona with fewer than five cases. That's for a county versus a place like New York City, which is hundreds of thousands of people. So where is the problem? In other words, should in March it was you started seeing a patchwork and we started wondering, well, is it one size fits all? Is it is it uh, Governor Cuomo's solution for New York appropriate for, for the uh, Governor Ducey's solution in Arizona or a different governor in a less impacted place like, like uh, Montana or something like that? So you're getting this patchwork of different data sets and you're seeing spikes in numbers. LA pointed out, you know, you went from 100 to 1,000 in the blink of an eye. Well, is that because 1,000 people contracted it the next day? Or is it because we had a lack of testing? And so we just don't know. These are just the cases that have been tested the next day or the next week. So testing, testing, testing is turning out to be important. Just mm, take the human life aside of it and just say for a better picture of the facts. If you don't have very much testing, then the data is going to be opaque. You're not going to be able to to see what the impact is because you don't know, because there isn't a test. Now, what's interesting about something like the seasonal flu that I've had a few times in my life, including the the two times I mentioned, uh, there wasn't, so far as I know, a test that says you have the seasonal flu. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. I was feeling ill, but I don't remember there being a long series of tests in order for my doctor to look me in the eye and say, Jay Scott, you got the flu. Uh, that didn't seem to be in contention. There wasn't a lot of... I didn't have to wait in a drive through for six hours or go through 74 pieces of red tape. I saw a doctor and he, looked, he listened to my chest and looked into my throat and said, you got the flu. So apparently we can't do this for coronavirus. You can't just look at somebody and say, oh, well, you've got a fever and you've got um, you know, muscle aches and you have a constriction of breath. Therefore, it's COVID-19. Well, that's not necessarily true at all. Those are also symptoms of seasonal flu and a great many other things too. So so in March, to me, this was a, a blackness of the data, an almost blackout level where you're just getting little flashlight windows. Okay, you've got a spike of a thousand cases in America, but that's because you've tested a thousand people uh, or more likely you've tested, you know, 50,000 people. And that's the, those are the ones that tested positive. So in Arizona, I know that something like 95% of tests have come back negative. So you're testing an awful lot of people and finding that 5%. Well, but how many people are you really testing? And so I think the U.S. did trip up on this area. Uh, if anything, it was because we don't have, it didn't have early enough and comprehensive enough testing. And I think that compares also to some other nations. Uh, we hear about very good, uh, nearly universal testing in place like uh, South Korea uh, or Taiwan, or even better testing and more comprehensive testing and nation like Germany or or, uh, or Iceland. So so it seemed pretty clear to me by the time we got to the end of March that if COVID-19 is such a big deal, if the mortality rate really could be as great as, you know, SARS or the Spanish flu of 1918 
or the Black Plague, then we better find a test at the very least. And we seem to have had delays. How hard can that be? Well, there's reagents. Parts of the test that we derive are raw materials, have them shipped from... Can you believe it? China. So they're a little slow onboarding their materials. We're a little slow and reactive in terms of red tape. And, you know, it's emerging by the end of the March that the U.S. has this unusually huge problem, uh, in particular as it's weighted to New York City itself, the true global epicenter, at least in terms of cases that have been identified. New York City is the worst place to be in the world. Uh, It's a worse place to be in the world than Wuhan, China, if you believe Wuhan, China and their state um, information and the data that they provide by their very secretive government. Well, then New York City is the worst place ever. Uh, And so as March is going on, everybody's starting to shut down. Uh, Most states are starting to shut down by the end of March. Most of the American population is on lockdown by the end of March. Um. And everybody's wondering, what the hell is the mortality rate going to be? Are the hospitals going to get overwhelmed? Are people going to die in the hallways? Is this, in fact, you know, the great deluge, the great end of civilization as we know it? At the end of March, dot, 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 stay tuned because we don't have this mortality data. In fact, we don't have very much uh, comprehensive data at all. So better safe than sorry, everybody goes into lockdown, including most Americans. By the end of March... You know, we had no idea what to expect. We heard that we should do things to take preventative measures, prophylactic measures, measures that will prevent becoming contracting it. You wash your hands, you keep your six feet of distance, you don't gather in groups of more than 10, you don't visit certain kind of places uh, or people, you don't go to long-term care facilities in or out. Even if you're a family member, you can't go to a hospital room if somebody's dying or giving birth if you're a family member. You can't go to a funeral if you're a family member. So by that, I take to mean if we're going to react to this in this huge way, then I'm going to assume that the mortality rate is going to be more than 1%, maybe 10%, maybe more than 10%. If we're going to react in this fashion, then I presume we're going to act in this fashion because medical experts and the politicians recognize it, that millions and millions of people, uh, and not just one or two million, but 10% of the U.S. is going to die. Uh, That would be, you know, 35 million people. If that were the case, then I would have understood this kind of intense, truly intense shutdown and and, uh, emergency measures. If it was 1%, well, maybe. But if it turns out to be 0.1% or if it turned out to be something like H1N1, then we've scared ourselves silly. And so human beings don't always, uh, it's not intuitive It takes a lot of training to look impartially at large sets of data and not get stuck on the anecdotes, right? So if it's your mom that gets COVID-19 and dies, this has an enormous impact on you. If it's your kid, if it's your wife, uh, if it's yourself, the impact is overwhelming slash knockout blow level because it happened to you. But from a data perspective... Who, how many of you are there? Is there one you? Is there a thousand you? Is there a hundred million of you? And that makes a difference when you're talking about, about how to steer an entire nation, about what to do, what the average person should do about his or her family. Uh, and so it's easy to say, you know, I this had a horrible impact, right? So if you take a look at the children of the people who died of H1N1 in 2009, we said a billion people were infected more or less and 18,000 of them died. So if you talk to a group of 100 people whose parents died from it among the 18,000, they would say H1N1 had an overwhelming impact on their life. They 
grieved, they mourned, it affected their job, it affected their family relationships, it affected their psyche, it affected their worldview of something like all 100 of that sample set would more or less agree to that. I could understand that. But if that 100 people is a grain of sand on an entire beach, then what happened to the rest of the beach? How do they see it? Because there's a lot more of them by overwhelming amounts in the case of in the case of H1N1. So by the end of March, I think we were waiting for, I know I was waiting for some data in terms of the mortality rate of this virus. What we can see demonstrated here is the absolute need for data and data in the case of a pandemic comes from testing. If you don't have testing, you don't have data. If you don't have data, you can't make decisions. If you can't make the proper decisions or you fear that you can't make the correct decision because of a lack of data, then you have to do what we did, which is shut down the entire world economy because you're just not sure what might take place. Um, As Jay Scott pointed out, you're not sure if we're going to exceed the capacity of our hospitals. You're not sure if the mortality rate is going to be 20% or higher or lower. You're not sure who is going to live and who's going to die. So as a public official, you have to err on the side of caution. And I think most Americans understood that in the month of March. Um, the, f- the fault is in the data, is in the lack of data, I should say. Um, and there's plenty of blame to go around for the lack of data. Although, as we've already pointed out in the timeline, um, not having the data is something that is just a fact. The data just wasn't there. Um, and it wasn't there until at the very latest early March, not any kind of data really at all, other than uh, we had some impacted people in the US, the majority of which it seemed had come from Wuhan. Um, and if we locked down China in the absence of data, you locked down the travel from China, you quarantine those who had come here from China. And any kind of spread that might have been from those people who travel from China. And, you know, even if it becomes an H1N1 situation, you, you're you not going to have the death rates, the mortality rates that we have to be concerned about. Now, you know, as Jay Scott also pointed out, we don't want to minimize death. Um, those impacted, those who experience death is related to COVID-19. This is a terrible situation. We've had plenty of deaths in the actual data. Um, And for those people, obviously our thoughts and prayers go to the families. But from a data perspective, you have to make decisions based based on the large data set that's provided. And there just was not a large data set provided because there was not a large amount of data because there wasn't a large amount of testing. And so the only thing really that I see in the timeline data that could have been different is that you could have had a lot more randomized testing done at some point in time in the month of March. It wouldn't have made sense in the month of February. I don't think anyone would have said that you know testing on a mass scale would have needed to be done in February based on what we knew. But in March, you could have started some randomized testing based on the fact that we could not test. The apparatus didn't exist to test everyone in the United States once we find out found out that everyone in that every state in the union was going to have coronavirus cases. But you could have probably done some randomized testing in order to get enough data to make a better decision than we did. We just didn't do that. We still haven't done that, by the way. It's mid-April. I haven't seen randomized testing being done throughout you know, the United States 
Um, so it's still not being done. It probably should be done because without some kind of sample of data in mass, you don't have to go test everybody. We know us data people know that you don't have to go test every single person in the United States in order to make a decision, but you do have to test some and randomly. So in lots of different areas in order to make some good decisions. And so we couldn't make good decisions. We had to make panic style decisions in order to ensure that this wouldn't be 1918, that it would instead be 2009. Or, you know, we knew it wasn't going to be 2003, but maybe it would be 2009. Maybe it would be 1918. We didn't know. So we locked it down in March based on the data we had, which was very poor data. Um, due to time constraints in the podcast, I'm not going to go through the rest of April. Suffice it to say that uh, April came without much, without without really any data to go on. And as we've come through the month of April, now we're basically into maybe a month to a month and a half of data collecting. And we've, at least most states are flattening the curve. This is a phrase that has been thrown about constantly in the U.S., flattening the curve. What we did in our in our decision making was we didn't have a vaccine. We didn't have good data. So all we knew is that we needed to flatten the curve, which basically meant that we needed to, to avoid having hundreds of thousands of people come down with coronavirus at once because that would have flooded the hospital capacity. That would have flooded the beds and the ventilator at the capacity. And we wouldn't have been able to um, respond appropriately from a medical standpoint. So flattening the curve meant we were going to limit the amount of people that came down with coronavirus uh, so that we could support it. We knew we weren't going to have a cure. We knew we weren't going to have a vaccine. We knew we weren't going to have the data we needed to make good decisions. So if we locked it down and destroyed the economy for a, for a short period of time, then while we, while we were gathering the data, while we were developing uh, mass testing ability, then we would flatten this curve. Now, supposedly, fast forward to today, we have flattened this curve. Um, we have enough ventilators. We have enough hospital beds. We haven't had a mass uh, influx of coronavirus cases to the point where they overwhelmed the system. Um, as of today, or as of April 16th, there were 639,000 confirmed coronavirus cases and reportedly 30,985 confirmed deaths. Uh, that's a 4.8% mortality rate, which is high. Um, and an estimated 3.24 million tests had been conducted, indicating about 20% of those tested had coronavirus. Now, those numbers are still assuming things in the data that we're, we don't really know for sure. We don't really know the asymptomatic population. Why is that important? Well, it's important because the mortality rate is based on it, right? When you're looking at numerators and denominators, uh, currently we're saying that 700,000 confirmed coronavirus cases and 30,000 Let's just round it off. 650,000 confirmed cases, 30,000 deaths. You're in like around a 4.5% mortality rate. That would be considered high. That, you know, if you have close to a 5% mortality rate, then that's high. Um, But only 3 million tests conducted. So if you're looking at a 20% case conversion rate, those are high numbers. But what's the asymptomatic population? Because since we're not doing randomized testing, we're not testing asymptomatic people. We, we don't have, we don't know who has the antibodies for the virus already built in because they've already had it. Um, so we don't really know how many coronavirus cases are out there. We don't have a proper denominator in the calculation. You could easily, let's say you had, um, instead of uh, just looking at the 700,000 or the 650,000 confirmed coronavirus cases and the 30,000 deaths, let's say you actually have millions of cases of people that have had coronavirus. 
Well, that's going to take your mortality rate down below 1%. Your percentage is going to fall dramatically because your numerators increase dramatically. Your numerator denominator in this percentage calculation is important. And we're not doing the proper testing. So we, we once again, we don't have reliable data in order to make these calculations. So that type of data reporting is, it's not, it's not good data reporting. Uh, you got to give people numbers. You have to uh, go with what you have, but you know, you can't just take the fraction based on those coronavirus cases that have been reported. You simply don't know the asymptomatic population. Um, so uh, let's actually look at some real data uh, that we have now, besides the numbers that I gave you as of April 16th, um, according to the CDC, looking at actual data, you know, that they have roughly up to about April 11th, April 12th, um, looking at actual cases, trying to look at what actual mortality rates really are, uh, because as Jay Scott said, that's going to be important to answer the question, how do we go forward? Now, we already know that Trump has, uh, as of yesterday, has come around and said, okay, basically it's time to get back to work in areas that we can. Uh, it's correct to say, based on the data, that you cannot just throw a one-size-fits-all solution on this because uh, you have many counties in across the United States that have no deaths from coronavirus. You have many counties that have single-digit and only double-digit deaths. Um, you know, so hundreds of thousands of people in a county, you only have two or three deaths. In some cases, no deaths, as opposed to like Queens in New York that has a vast amount of cases and a large amount of deaths. So we simply can't just lock everybody in the U.S. down or continue to lock everybody in the United States down when we have different impacts across counties, cities, states. Um, the other data point that we're looking at is age group. Now, this is very important because we didn't have really good data on this until recently. But the fact is, according to the data, that coronavirus does not kill healthy young people. Um, I'm going to put Jay Scott on the spot here. I'm going to ask him a question that he wasn't uh, looking for. But it's a data point that I found interesting that, uh, um, that I'm going to throw out here. So the question is, how many people as of April 11th in the United States under the age of 34 died of coronavirus, died of COVID-19? Under the age of 34, how many people died of uh, coronavirus? Is it less than 500 or more than 500? All right. So I haven't seen this uh, demographic breakout from April 11th that LA talks about, but I'll guess under 500, because that seems to be the direction of the question. Could be wrong, but I'll, I'll guess that. But I'll also call a little bit of shenanigans, not at, on LA, but my point about data being that we've heard that um, at-risk groups are older folks, uh, people over 60, or people with pre-existing health conditions. Uh, so immune compromise, cancer therapy, diabetes, um, you know, uh, long-term... Uh, heart problems, lung problems, those folks are more at risk. And what are the odds that the persons, you know, who are 25 years old have that symptomatology? Well, they're going to be much lower. So my point being there is like we did with the case where we said 100 out of 100 people whose parents died of SARS in 2003 say that it had a catastrophic impact on their life. That being, you know, the one grain of sand on the beach and you're asking about the rest of the beach. Well, here I make the data point that says younger folks are not impacted, but are they being tested? Are they asymptomatic? And asymptomatic is going to change the baseline of mortality for all the groups. 
But it's not just you're asymptomatic, meaning you experienced no symptoms. In fact, most people who experience symptoms don't go to the hospital, and many of them may not get tested. So they're not just asymptomatic, they have symptoms, but they're not sufficient to get them in front of a tester or in a hospital environment where such a a test or treatment takes place. So the mortality rate is going to be, based on what we've seen by mid-April, much lower than 5%. Uh, It could be lower than 1%. I'm going to guess that maybe it will turn out to be lower than 1%. But for folks that are young, I will assume it's, it's much less than that because they're healthy to start with. Doesn't mean every single one of them will be immune, but in general, they're more healthy. So there's my response to that. In the United States, coronavirus deaths for people under the age of 34 is 113. Um, In the United States, coronavirus deaths for people under the age of 24 is 13. So we've had um, between the time periods, according to the CDC, between February 1st and April 11th, you've had roughly 16,000 people between the ages of 15 and 34 die. And out of those 16,000 people that have died at a young age between 15 and 34, 116 people have died of COVID-19. At the same time, 421 people between those same age groups, 15 to 34, have died of pneumonia. During that same time frame, young people between the age of 15 and 34, you've had um, 144 people die of the common flu. So uh, what we can say about mortality rates for young people is that young people that don't have pre-existing conditions that compromise their immune system, basically from a data standpoint, do not die of coronavirus. Um, It's extremely, extremely small. Uh, The majority of people that are impacted by coronavirus are the elderly. Um, In the elderly age group, for example, uh, between 65 and 74 years of age, uh, you have over 3,000 deaths, according to the CDC, um, of coronavirus, as opposed to 114,000 total deaths. Uh, in that age range. So obviously, as you get into more elderly age groups, more people die just in general. So of any cause, you've got hundreds of thousands of deaths between 65 and 85 years old. Um, And so you also have more COVID-19 deaths for the elderly age group. Obviously, their immune systems are going to be more compromised. They're going to um, be more susceptible to the COVID-19 virus. So in some aspects, the data is how you would expect it. But in other aspects, as far as demographics go within age groups, you just don't see the problem. Uh, You don't see COVID-19 being a problem for young people. The only issue that we have is young people being asymptomatic, carrying the virus and passing it on to elderly people and uh, you know, causing them to get very sick or possibly die. So uh, when you're looking at mortality rates in the data that we have, if you look just strictly at the data, you can make better decisions than you could make in mid-March or the end of March. Um, and I think that's what the, the, the point is in regard to making decisions based on data. We weren't able to make good decisions in March because we didn't have mortality rates. We didn't have mass testing going on. We still don't have mass testing going on, but at least we have a better idea of mortality rate. And we can see that young people do not die uh, from a large data perspective, do not die of COVID-19. Now, some people have, but like we've tried to explain when it comes to data, we're not talking about one or two people you know, that are impacted. We don't like to see even one death, but people die. It happens. People die of the flu. People die of pneumonia. 
in young people, you know, under the age of 34 die, uh, have more people die of influenza and pneumonia than they do COVID-19 directly. And that's over a two month period of time. So we can say when we're making decisions about bringing America back, about bringing the economy back, which we know has to be done, we cannot stay in lockdown in perpetuity, or, you know, you already have 22 million unemployed in America, and that's just after a few weeks of people hitting the unemployment lines, um, you're going to destroy the economy if you stay in lockdown. So it's not possible to stay in lockdown until there is no trace of COVID-19. It just can't happen. So what do you have to do? You have to make a decision of, yes, there is still COVID-19 in the population, but we have to start getting back, uh, getting the economy back on track, which means we have to start putting America back to work again. So making the decision as to how we're going to go forward, you have to look at the data that you have. You have to increase your data that's coming in. So we need to do randomized testing. We need to do as much testing as we can. We can't test every person in the United States of America every week. We don't have the ability to do that, but we do have the ability to do randomized testing in different areas of the country to give us an even better idea of the asymptomatic population and how many people are actually dying. But based on what we know, we know that in mass, coronavirus does not kill young people, but it does kill elderly people, as far as we know, at a higher rate than we than we would see as a normal death rate. Right now, there more elderly people are dying of coronavirus than cancer, um, uh, and it's pretty equal to the rate of elderly people that die of heart disease. So it it is a killer of elderly people, as far as we know. It may have a less less of a percentage of a death rate or, or mortality rate once we understand the full population when we can do better testing. But until then, the decision has to be made to let young people go back to work. Not young people being as high as the age of uh, 45 to 55 people, uh, aged people. So uh, the mortality rates, based on the data we have, don't start to increase at a rapid rate until you get over the age of 55. Uh, 45 to 54, um, it starts to increase, but it doesn't increase near the rate of uh, 55 to 64 and then 65 to 85, obviously the highest point of increase. So you have to keep, you have to let the young people go and you have to keep them away from the elderly people, right? I mean, that's the best decision that you can make. So as governors look at the data, as the Trump administration looks at the data, they are right about two things currently. You don't have a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, locking the entire country down makes absolutely no sense in the face of the data. Um, and locking down young people makes no sense in the face of the data. What does make sense is to have young people look out for the elderly people. So social distancing still makes sense. Uh, you want to go ahead and let young people be asymptomatic. You want to let them go ahead and even possibly you can make the case of even a herd um, infection amongst young people, but you need to keep them away from the elderly population. So you need to put in place uh, a herd immunity amongst young people. You need to mass test those young people. You need to understand what the asymptomatic population is. You need to randomize test young and old people so you can understand uh better the data over the next few months. Uh, so you can make even better decisions as to um, how the elderly population is reacting to COVID-19 as time moves on um, to the point where we can start to let the elderly population um, move back into society once again as well, because obviously that's important too. So um, 
given what we know, there's no reason to keep young people locked down. The only reason to keep them social distancing is to protect the elderly. So you've heard some of that in the media, but you've also heard a lot of uh, other talk from governors saying that um, they're state needs to be locked down until March 15th. Uh, the governor of Virginia is so far sticking, as far as I know, to his June 10th idea. You have um, then other governors saying that, um, you know, they're going to be looking at opening up the beaches, opening up different areas where they think they can control and monitor um, the social distancing aspect, which based on the data, I think is decent. But Full state lockdowns, I don't see how you can come to that in the data um, because we don't really have to act out of decision-making, out of fear anymore. We have a good idea of the mortality rate within age population, um, and that's an important data point that doesn't need to be overlooked. In fact, it needs to be uh, even understood better, and seems to me the way you do that is by increasing the testing, especially randomized testing. So um, do you draw any other conclusions other than uh, other than what I've stated based on uh, current mortality rates? Yeah, I would say something like um, a mayor of New York City, uh, if the cases are sustained in terms of being way more full-blown than anywhere else in the world, uh, and in the U.S. in particular, then maybe New York City does need to be locked down for a while longer in particular because it's so rampant there, and they need to be tested more because it's so rampant there. But in the rest of the country, uh, and including many parts of the country that don't have this kind of voluminous, comprehensive New York City-level problem, I think Trump did you know, a rather conservative thing. Not, I don't mean politically, but I mean rather than risk uh, very much. He set April 30th as this uh, kind of guidance. And as we approach April 30th, now he has revealed his, you know, uh, the plan of his task force for how places will get reopened. And a couple of data points that I look at that help drive that decision are this uh, flattening of the curve, as we've mentioned. And for the flattening of the curve data, I talk to people, not Americans, who are very interested in this diagram. And the diagram is on uh, uh, Wikipedia. If you look up COVID-19 under the history subtab, this gets updated approximately daily, uh, this graph. And the one I have was updated yesterday, so April 16th. And this is a graph uh, called Confirmed COVID-19 Cases, um, and it's... The uh, axes, the x-axis, is the number of days per country that have gone by since the 100th confirmed case in that country. How many days have gone by since that happened? In the U.S., we're in the 40s, approaching 50 days. Um, so since we hit our 100th case. And then the y-axis is the number of, of cases. And this is where you see the, the so-called bending of the curve. So if you look at this graph, you get a bunch of sprouty lines all coming from the, the lower left of the graph where all countries start on their 100th confirmed case. And everything is in there. India, Austria, Turkey, Singapore, China, Japan, US, uh, many, many countries are listed. They each get a color and they kind of bend off as they rise and move toward the right. And so you've got this sprouting of, of curves, really. And you can see a country that bent the curve very quickly and very efficiently so far, the flattest of the curves would be Japan um, and China, which has a perfectly flat curve. But that again, that's China data. So <clears throat> that's not clear to me. But a case like Japan, where the data is more 
independent and verifiable is a good example of a an excellent curve where after about 10 days after their 100th confirmed case, they started bending the curve and now it is um, nearly horizontal, almost perfectly horizontal, very tiny growth. You see bending of the curves in super global hotspots like Italy and Spain have bent their curves. The uh, country with the most cases and the highest on the rank in terms of their line is the United States. Now, why is that? Is there something about Americans that means we get take to COVID-19 more than other peoples of the world? No. Is it because we all live in big cities and the rest of the world doesn't? No. Um, is it because we have a cavalier attitude about our health? Maybe, but I'm going to still say no. Uh, but what you can see in the U.S. is a bending of the curve. And that started around... I mean, if you just look at the nature of the graph, it probably started on about 20 days after the 100th case, beginning of this bending of the curve, until today where the U.S. curve isn't flat. It isn't uh, nearly perfectly flat, like somewhere like Japan, uh, but it's an obvious bend and heading in that direction. So we'll stay tuned. But I, I bring this up partly because Trump set April 30th as the date, and that's two weeks from now. And in two weeks, we're going to see the full evidence in the U.S. of the bending of the curve. If the bending of the curve really happened and we flatten out that line to make it look like the line currently in Japan or uh, Austria, another place with a excellent bending of the curve, uh, Iran has bent their curve very well. If it turns out to be like that, then it makes sense, these lifting of restrictions. If you do it on, if you would have done it on Easter, as Trump originally theorized, or if you did it today, it's, you still haven't quite seen the end of the bending of the curve in the U.S. So if you really wanted to see it, you'd wait until April 30th, and it'll be a full incontrovertible display, if that's in fact what happens. And it does look like that's happening. Um, so this is where you get the release of the Trump uh, COVID task force. This is the one led by Vice President Pence and uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks and others that we see on daily briefings after the Cuomo show, generally. Uh, and they came up with these guidelines that have been released. And I don't know, LA, if you've looked at the guidelines, but there's a gating, there's a series of phases to restart uh, the economy and, and the social interaction and getting back to work that that requires. But there's a three phases, but those are preceded by this gating, what they call gating criteria. And here I'm looking at whitehouse.gov. Uh, slash opening America. That's how you can find the uh, PowerPoint that Dr. Burks uh, and the task force went over, and you can see it. And so the gating really is is required on the following uh, the following predicates, which are symptoms, a downward trajectory of influenza-like illnesses reported within a 14-day period, and a downward trajectory of COVID-like syndromic cases reported within a 14-day period. So you have to see a bending of the curve on symptoms. In cases, you have to see a downward trajectory, I'm quoting here, a downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14-day period, or a downward trajectory of positive tests as a percent of total cases within a 14-day period. Um, hospitals have to be able to treat all patients without crisis care, and there has to be a robust testing program in place for at-risk health uh, care workers, including emerging antibody testing. So all that stuff has to happen before phase one can occur. And it looks like April 30th is a probable that's 14 days from now. And we're already seeing a bending of the curve, clearly a bending of the curve on April 17th. But by April 30th, it should be in a conservative way, in a non-risk kind of look, a lower risk, a minimization of risk kind of way. If you met all these requirements, 
you're good to go. Some states may, uh, some governors may kick off their back-to-work programs before the 30th because they were already taking into account the bending of the curves in particular in their state. And so when you do that, when you satisfy all that, you go to these phases, and this is how you get, get back to work, is by entering the phase one at a time. And if you you go through the phase and there's a spike in cases or deaths, then you have to go back to the previous phase. So phase one is where we're going to be at plus or minus in certain regions around April 30th, perhaps a little before, perhaps a little after, but April 30th is a is kind of a, you know, midstream target for many places, many states, maybe not all. And so when you hit phase one, if you're an individual, it says vulnerable individuals continue to shelter in place. Now, what are vulnerable individuals? Well, LA just told you there are people over the age of 65 and there are people that have a compromised immune systems or chronic disease, uh, heart problems, lung problems, uh, cancer therapy, that kind of stuff. Those vulnerable individuals continue to shelter in place. Um, and so uh, individuals, everyone, when in public, should maximize physical distance, social settings of more than 10 people. Where appropriate distancing may not be practical should be avoided. Avoid socializing in groups of more than 10 people in circumstances that do not allow for appropriate physical distancing. So phase one, minimize non-essential travel. Uh, So it's just kind of a slight lightening of this quarantine lockdown stuff, which then people would be able to go back to work, but they still would have restrictions upon them, this socializing in in groups of more than 10. If you pass that, uh, such as for a couple of weeks, and your rates are still going down, you're still bending the curve, then you can proceed to phase two, which opens it up... uh, Further, such as allowing non-essential travel uh, or social groups, uh, not more than 50. So instead of 10, now it's 50. Um, And there are requirements for businesses, too. By the time you get to phase three, it's a lot more open, including vulnerable people should practice physical distancing, but they could still resume public interactions. Why? Because the curve is bent all the way through phase two. Um, And so businesses will be back to work. including by the end of phase three, unrestricted staffing of work sites. So before that, in stage one, you, you'll have, you know, restaurants can be open, but social distancing will have to take strong effect. So your restaurant won't seat as many people. Your bars will have to remain closed. In step stage two, they can open with groups up to 50. And in stage three, uh, it's unrestricted, but still you have to pass a 14-day period within phase three before the whole thing goes away. So this is kind of what was released by the task force uh, in this gating and three-phase process is a means of getting back to work and getting back to normal, but with safety valves built in. So this was interesting because we talked about it in previous podcasts, Will Trump adhere to this April 30th guidance? And now will the governors adhere to it? Well, some will move forward by then and others not. So you have some that are saying July. I've heard I've heard talk by uh, some of the left that this may have to continue in a non-normal way through 2022. Well, that, that kind of thing is ruinous, completely ruinous uh, to the economy. And so there's no way it's going to be 2022. Uh, so it looks like Trump more or less held the line on this April 30th guidance, I will note, as he said he would hold to the line on April 30th, so that he's making that happen, um, and he's encouraging the governors to make it happen in their states. Now, the final data point that I look at, and I look at this often, maybe too often, but this is a list of a breakout by state, every state for a number of cases, and then it has a further breakdown 
cases by 100,000 residents, deaths total based on 100,000 residents. And so you're getting this uh, chart that's updated, this data set updated every day, and in some cases, multiple times a day. The origin of it is John Hopkins University Center for System Science and Engineering. And today, you can see the state ranking of the number of cases and deaths. And and this is, let me just say, New York, New York, New York. Uh, this is, you know, a third or half of all the cases in the entire U.S. and would be one of the biggest uh, countries in the world in terms of cases and deaths if New York City were a country. Um, and so as you go and look at what are called the hot spots, then you may be looking at a place like New York, which has 231,000 cases as of today and 17,000 deaths. So, and the rate of that deaths per case is 88 out of 100,000 people. Well, how much is that, right? So 88 out of 100,000 is really 8 out of 10,000, which is really 0.8 out of 1,000, which is really 0.08 of a percent out of 100. So that's the worst case scenario in America. The far from it, the best case scenarios in America are places with a death rates of around one per 100,000 of their population, a, a kind of approaching H1N1 level of statistical non-relevance from the larger data set perspective. Uh, a place like Utah has less than one death per 100,000 uh, people in that state. Arkansas, South Dakota, I'm scanning through the list, Nebraska, West Virginia, Hawaii, North Dakota, Montana, Alaska, Wyoming, these are all one or less out of 100,000 people. And there are many states that are around two out of 100,000 people. So these are, are places like uh, like Oregon and Minnesota and New Mexico. Idaho is like that. Uh, Maine is like that. And not only them, but also uh, Iowa is like that. South Carolina is like that. Arizona, North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, Texas. These are all places with two deaths per 100,000, a kind of H1N1 mortality rate uh, based on total population. So a place like New York, where it's rampant and out of hand, is totally, totally different than a place like Arizona or North Carolina, let alone somewhere like uh, Wyoming uh, or Montana or places uh, like Utah that have even less than one uh, death per 100,000 people. So the governors of these states are going to are going to say, you know, the risk of somebody contracting this and the risk of somebody dying from it is incredibly small. Our state needs to get back to work. I could see a state like New York. Uh, these are the top Top five states, uh, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. These are all uh, East Coast states or Old Northwest in the case of Michigan. Uh, those top five states have pretty high number of cases, although Pennsylvania is seven deaths per 100,000 residents. Very low compared to something over 10 times worse, uh, like New York. So the way it's set up now, Trump has given the guidance to the governors, if you feel you're ready, open up around April 30th and comply with these following gating phases uh, and move forward. You're going to see a lot of states jumping on board on that. I could see hesitance in a state like New York or, or possibly New Jersey, uh, where, you know, the the death rate is, is fairly high and the number of cases is really high. So there I would could see you know, using more caution than a state like even Texas, a very huge state with 18,000 cases, but this is two deaths out of 100,000. So, you know, m much of the Midwest, uh, and this is everything from, by if you want to call Midwest, you could take everything from 
and call it that from basically Oregon to Pennsylvania. That whole region of the country doesn't have a spike in cases. Washington and California are higher ranking, but even they are nothing like New York or New Jersey. So, and then when you get to the rest of them, the Arizona, New Mexico, Utah type stuff, you got a lot of people in those states wanting to get back to work and not be unemployed. Stimulus that might come or not come, they're ready to roll. And and I could see the federal government stepping in and saying, hey, you didn't pass phase one. You implemented phase one. You let people back to work, but gatherings of less than 10, and you still didn't bend the curve during the 14-day window. So now you have to go back to the beginning of phase one and do it all over again. If you go to phase three and it didn't work during that two-week window, you have to go back to phase two. And so you have to keep doing it. I personally like this uh, idea of the safety valve approach because it's cautious. And it says on April 17th, we still don't have all the data we would like to have uh, by far. So let's use caution and do it in these graduated two-week things that get us back rolling for those states which which wish to do so. I could see, like I say, uh, Governor Cuomo saying, well, hold the brakes on that. April 30th is too soon for us. We have the worst outbreak of pandemic in the entire world. We need to use even more caution. I get that. On the other hand, I heard Cuomo uh, shipped off 50,000 ventilators this week because he didn't need them. The hospital system of New York City and New York State turned out to be, in that worst-case scenario, not overrun. So the hospital ship that Trump sent to New York City, last I heard, was only at 5% capacity. Um, and the governor shipping out his own ventilators that were stockpiled. So if that's New York and their hospital system did not get overrun, then it seems to me unlikely that anywhere else is going to get overrun. If it is and they don't pass the phase, then they have to go back and redo that phase and go to the previous phase and redo it. So that's kind of where we're at on April 17th. And I would expect, and I think we should follow up on Up Your Dialogue, and have a clear discussion about this right around April 30th, as we've had two weeks more data. Uh, we're going to have a better picture in two weeks. LA has talked about randomized testing. Critical and very important. Well, why would you test somebody that doesn't have uh, coronavirus? Well, first of all, you don't know if they do or not, right? So that's the result of the test telling you they don't have it, if that's the case. And secondly, if you do this randomized testing, all different demographics uh, regions, um, ages, um, and places with population densities heavier and less. Um, gender, we hear that men seem to be beset by COVID-19 and more than women somewhat, and that's another interesting aspect of it that needs to be explored further. But when you test people, you'll pick off a number of the asymptomatics and you'll know how many they are, or at least you'll have a window into statistically calculating how many there are. Uh, and secondly, you'll know even further which age groups uh, and genders and uh, and other demographics will be impacted. So you know if they need to be targeted more. If you don't see any cases, this I heard Trump say this. You know why are they going to wear a mask in Wyoming? I didn't understand that Trump says, and somebody had to tell me. Well, the reason why they might have to wear a mask during you know these phases or as a precursor is because people will then come from somewhere else to Wyoming, right? So we haven't, I haven't heard that much about travel bans, but it would be interesting if you're from Wyoming and you open your state and you're in phase one, how many tourists from New York do you want to be coming there during this phase? My guess is probably not too many. So I wonder what the rules are going to be around that. If you're in a clear case of a COVID outbreak, you're your city, then it seems to me there should be a travel restriction pertaining to that city that says not here, not until you pass your three phases, uh, that kind of thing. So those are some of the some of the data points that I look at as we approach mid-April and look look toward uh, April 30th. All right. So we've looked at a fair amount of timeline data. We've looked at death rates in the data, testing rates, 
in the data. And, you know, we have been able to come to conclusions because we have more data now that we wouldn't have been able to come to two weeks ago that we certainly wouldn't have been able to come to a month ago. Um, and that shows how important data collection and testing is um, during times of uncertainty, um, especially as it relates to pandemics. Um, the data tells us some clear things now, I think. And I think that basically uh, we would agree that the uh, that the new guidelines set out are some pretty fair guidelines, I think, um, with some ability for governors to make those decisions that they need to make because one state is not like exactly like another state. Um, so uh, a phased approach that the governors can take and apply uh, based on their situation, um, even mayors having their own voice in this is probably a good idea, uh, being even more localized than the governors, being able to you know, look at particular counties and make those decisions. Uh, you're going to have a much more successful rollout of getting America back, uh, back in play uh, the more localized you go, because this thing just based on the data, is not attacking certain counties the same way it attacks other counties. Um, some counties having zero deaths in the United States. And it does not attack age groups um, the same. So uh, you could make a case, like we've already brought up, brought up that you not uh, blanket age groups uh, in, this, in this thing. So even within the guidelines, if you do have um, a spike in a certain area of uh, COVID-19 cases, they're probably going to be in the elderly population unless you're judging asymptomatics. And if that's the case, then you simply are going to have to quarantine the elderly until um, those cases are lowered. Um, so good data means good decisions. Bad data means bad decisions. Um, decisions made out of fear. I think looking at all the data, especially um, the demographic data and the timeline data, uh, I don't think that it's really um, realistic to put blame on one particular area, uh, whether it's the Trump administration, whether it's the task force or the uh, uh, Health and Human Services, uh, even the WHO, which is getting a lot of heat for being a, a China tool. Uh, one piece of data that you can say is that the United States gives a lot more money to the WHO than China does. Um, and there might be some data that shows the WHO didn't act quite like it should. We have data that rolled out uh, recently that, that China, as recent as today, that China is now saying that it did hold back its numbers and they have a much higher mortality rate. Uh, so we'll be looking at that in the days to come as well, uh, where the numbers in China actually end up. And it's going to be very interesting to see how many people, if we can get there one day with the testing, how many people in the United States actually have coronavirus, I think, personally, based on what I've seen, that your asymptomatics are much higher than, than we know, um, and that you probably had a lot more people have coronavirus in the United States of America uh, than we ever realized, which means your mortality rates are a lot lower. So uh, here we are in mid-April, and we are flattening the curve. Um, we stayed inside to, to help our elderly population, to help flatten that curve, and to help in the face of unknown, in the face of uh, uncertainty, uh, we shut the economy down and we did it for the purpose of not knowing, not having the data. Um, and so now that the data is coming in, I think we can make the decisions we need to make, properly make, in order to uh, flip the switch back on again, especially for our, our younger population and hopefully soon for our older 
population. So data and all this, it's probably the most important aspect. And I think one thing that we definitely learned is that we have to be able to get our hands on that data much quicker than we are able to get our hands on data now. And it doesn't really matter what the situation is in the face of a pandemic. We have to be able to understand what's going on. Uh, We have to probably have much more mass testing capability in place, much like uh, South Korea and Japan. Um, It's a little bit harder in America just because um, you know we have a, we have 300 million people and we have a thing called the Constitution, so we can't just lock people up and f- force them to to test. But we can set up a system that allows us to get to the data much quicker, much faster. The result in less finger pointing. The result in better decisions by our um, state, federal, and even more local officials. And uh, it'll result probably in us not having to shut down the economy in the face of a much more known situation. Um, And that's going to help us uh, greatly in the future uh, for COVID-20, COVID-21, or whatever else comes down the pike. I know my son was saying to me today, you know, coronavirus, and his he's a 26-year-old healthy young adult male. So from his perspective, you know, he looks at the data and says, this is no big deal. Um, and from him being a young, healthy guy, it's not a big deal. And coronavirus is not going to be uh, something that is going to kill him by the numbers. Um, so his point was, what happens when we have a real problem on our hands? What happens when we have a real pandemic, uh, such as um, the Spanish flu or the Black Plague or something along those lines? How can we possibly deal with something like that? when we couldn't even deal with coronavirus. And, you know, he has a valid point on that. But the answer to that is better data, faster data. Um, We have to be able to get our hands on that uh, to be able to curb uh, future pandemics. Uh, Final thoughts from Jay Scott. I'll just pluck one thing you said um, out of a number of valid and wise points, which is less finger pointing. Less, Less finger pointing. Let's work together, America, so we can figure out the impact of COVID-19 and take steps so that when there's COVID-20, 21, and future plagues, we're better prepared to analyze, put a little more money into the science part, uh, get your vaccine, get your testing, get your antibody testing, um, and ease off on the finger pointing. In the middle of a, a crisis, now is not the time. There will be time for finger pointing. We have an election coming up toward the end of 2020, and there'll be lots of finger pointing. And we'll Get into that when we get there. But right now, this is mid-April. Let's work together, America, and ease off on the finger pointing. I think L.A. made a beautiful point on that. And also, uh, we thank him for researching for the podcast a very articulate and very detailed timeline that spanned all the way from you know December of last year through March, blow by blow, at the WHO uh, in the U.S. with HHS and the CDC and presenting a careful timeline so that we could go back and reflect on where we were at and where we are going. So thank you. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate you listening to the podcast. We think it was uh, informative to be able to go through this and uh, try and set the bias aside, try and set the political uh, mood aside, um, you know, not talk about the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and the, uh, and, and the Donald Trump's and the Dr. Fauci's, I mean, we may have touched on it a little bit here and there because you can't avoid it when you're talking about the subject. You have to talk about the president of the United States and Congress and stuff. But it wasn't our focus to bash one side or the other. It wasn't our focus to take one side and only present one side of the timeline or one side of the data that made one side look good. Um, We've said certain things about 
China that they deserved. Um, we've said certain things about the uh, um, the Trump administration administration that that they that they deserved. Uh, we we've tried to show a straight and normalized timeline and data points um, as factually and fairly as could be presented. Uh, since that's not being done in our mainstream media or otherwise, we hope it was informative to you. Uh, we hope it makes you able to make good decisions going forward because ultimately we are the people and we are the ones who make decisions on a daily basis and what's best for our families, what's best for our neighbors, the people around us. Uh, we hope that it's been um, something that's allowed you to see the issue more clearly and be able to behave in the best way you can for your own family and community. So uh, we look forward to uh, the future podcast. We'll obviously be talking more about COVID-19 as we go through the April 30th deadline. Um, and everyone has to make decisions on how they're going to react to that deadline uh, from the task force, Trump administration and governors. So we'll be looking at that. Oh, by the way, we still have an election on our hands that's coming up. So we've made some bold predictions and, uh, and, um, and different ideas in regards to that. In previous podcasts, we'll certainly be looking at that in future podcasts as well. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll even do some more movies, maybe a book or two here and there. You never know what you'll get here um, on Up Your Dialogue podcast, but you always should know that it will be um, a conversation, a dialogue that... Um, we hope anyways is, is beneficial to our listeners. So with that said, we'll see you next time. Be safe.